Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome the birthday boy, Michelle Gondry. So what do you think of when you watch these videos? Do you th think of how hard they might have been to make? Uh, no, actually, I was thinking that uh, it looked all right. <laughs> I, was pretty, I was pleased with myself. The, uh, yeah, they're pretty old. I mean, the Birk video, uh, it's 15 years old. Um, the Ringstone is 13 years old. Yeah. So they're not too bad for this time, I think. No, they hold up very well. No, that's, a good, that's a good thing in a way they were not so uh, exposed. Mm -hmm. they were, I mean, I didn't have the chance uh, to, uh, to get hit song uh, to make as videos, but uh, I realized later that it was, it was sort of a blessing because uh, they were still not too exposed when I uh, put them in my DVD, for instance. Mm -hmm. So it, it's good because... If I had done like a video that was a big hit uh, as a song, uh, then it, it gets it's sort of washed by, by the time. Well, you had practice making videos for your band, Wee oui, Wee. Oui. Could you mm -hmm. talk about that? Uh, first, how you got into that band as a drummer. Could you talk about that? Well, uh, we were in art school, uh, like a lot of uh, uh, musicians actually start their band in art school. It's not very original. But we, uh, <laughs> I, I, met, I met my friend uh, for life, in a way, when we, we were 16 and we moved into this sort of art school for sort of bad students <laughs> that could draw. And uh, <laughs> we started a band uh, in maybe 81, 82, that lasted 10 years, and it was called Wee Wee. And uh, I had done, done some uh, experimentation with animation, in an earlier age. And then one day I bought a, a, a film camera. I mean, I, I was flatmate with my friend Jean-Louis Bonpoint, who, who is my DP now. And uh, he had some equipment and he was a director, so he, he helped me a little bit. Hmm. So, uh, so that's how it started. I mean, I was doing a little uh, animated piece of uh, two minutes that was fitting our music because it was quite uh, minimalist and short. Mm -hmm. the, the song where um, so it was easy to illustrate uh, and uh, I mean the good thing about that is uh, I would never be allowed to impose on, upon them any personal vision I have to share with their idea because they were coming uh, especially Etienne the leader of the band was coming from uh, the visual world as well so he had as, ma ma as many ideas as me so it, it taught me to collaborate with artists and be able to uh, take in what they have to bring and, and what they have in mind and just not ignore it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and Bjork knew these videos. Wasn't, wasn't the, it these videos that drew... Yeah, she saw one. Uh, I had done six with my band and three were like ultra minimalist and three were a little less minimalistic. And she saw actually the last one we did, it's, it's called La Ville. And uh, she liked it, and then she went to see me in Paris, and she saw all the other videos of Wee Wee that were not in my showreel, uh, because I guess people thought it would be uh, not good for me to show them. 
But she was the first one to really respond to this yeah. early work I had done, and, and she couldn't stop laughing, which was very uh, rewarding. <laughs> she, I think we have a very similar sense of humor. Like sometimes when I, we're having dinner, I make like a completely flat joke and I hear a big laughter and it's pure. She, she's a good audience for me. She always thinks I should be a stand-up comedian or something. And Could you talk about the collaboration on human behavior, the video that we saw with her? Well, she went to visit me uh, in France and uh, in Paris. And the good thing with Björk is she... Well, we were at the sort of the same level. I mean, she had she was pretty successful with her band, and she was moving into being a solo artist. And me, that was sort of my beginning as well. So we were sort of uh, equal. But the good thing with her, she would never, and up to now, we never put people in competition, because she, and she's very aware of that. She thinks that if you select people by putting them in competition, you put them at the lowest of their confidence. So it's really a bad way. You're going to screen the people who are the most uh, uh, maybe charismatic or the more aggressive. Uh, but it doesn't mean that's going to be the best project. So she has an instinct to pick people for the right people for the right project, uh, at least for what she needs. And, and, and uh, So that's one thing that's great with her. And I've always been like that. Uh, and as well, as I was saying, like I was working with Bound, she would throw a lot of ideas. I would throw a lot of ideas. We had the conversation that went very uh, fast and very animated, where she talked about the Night of the Hunter, and, and mm. uh, we talked about cartoon we liked, uh, like the Eastern European animation versus Walt Disney, and the, the, the more craft and handmade, and a lot of things that we grew up uh, with, uh, we, she's like three years younger than me, but we, in Iceland, they would see probably more similar program uh, like France and America. So we are very much uh, into this type of uh, uh, TV shows in, the, in France in the 60s and early 70s where a lot of uh, uh, coming from the Poland or Ch- mm. uh, Czechoslovakia and, and, they, and you had this quality of, of handmade that you would not see from the Walt Disney Studio, for instance. But they, they were handmade live action animation? Uh, stop motion? Well, stop motion and with puppets. And I mean, there is this film that's uh, great by Jorin Stein that's called uh, uh, Hedgehog in the Fog. Mm. Um, I mean, it was more uh, actually the 80s. Uh, uh, he, he works with texture and, and he, he has this system he, he, he made put together. It's like a multi plan and it's very layered. But anyway, basically, you when you see the the film, it, it's, it doesn't hide how it's made. It invites you to understand how it's made, and to at least for me or people like me, it, it stimulates you to want to do the same because it's not something like uh, that. It's in your face and it's very uh, 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 sleek mm-hmm. and and impenetrable, uh, like perfect. Uh, so I always like that this idea that uh, uh, this creation you see includes sort of the making of within the frame and I remember uh, in 81 or 80 I went to see The Cure in concert at the time there were three and the concert the music was so simple and great that it would stimulate you emotionally it was very uh, strong but as well you would come back home and say, okay, I'm going to do my band. And I think, I mean, of course, the Six Pistols and those guys, that was their strength. It's like they uh, 
everybody started a band when they saw them because it seemed so simple. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's, that's something I always thought of when I uh, continue working. Even if the technique uh, is pushing boundaries or try to be complex, there is a sort of a simplicity that says, oh, well, you see how it's made and you, you could do it yourself. Yeah. And while you're responding in a way against... Um what you were seeing on, say, MTV or the conventional music videos, which are much more, I don't guess, elaborately produced, more, more slick in a way? Well, that's something that and sometimes it bugs me because people who are not really part of the video world, they say I'm a MTV generation, I'm coming from MTV, but I mean, my videos were hardly seen on MTV, and, right. and many times I've seen... Uh, even in recent years, the uh, 100 best video of all time, and I had zero uh, in them. <laughs> so, and, and it's fine. But then after, if people say, oh, yeah, that's uh, MTV generation, and they include me, I find something that's unfair. But at least if I was from the MTV generation, I should be represented on MTV, which I never was. So you're really trying on, old, on different traditions, um, early animation, early film? Well, I don't know if I was trying early animation. I was trying, uh, I mean, uh, to be unconventional. or I was just, uh, I mean, I bought this camera, uh, a Bolex, 16mm camera, and I tried to explore every possibility with this camera. And I think it's how I define a little bit uh, my style. I, I would rather make things myself than to... Have to ask people and to ask uh, to to fill up uh, 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 a form to ask for uh, subvention, uh, which I did once and it was I didn't, it didn't work out. So I decided, okay, I, I will do the stuff I want to do on my own. So I defined a little bit my style by uh, knowing my limitation and, and then trying to work within this perimeter. And did you always make things with your hands? I mean, that's the quality that sort of carries through all your work, this incredible... I, I made stuff with my nose, actually. I made the, <laughs> Before? The Rubik's Cube with my but... nose once. No, okay, sorry, that's... Okay, uh, sorry, okay. I have a Tourette syndrome by, by jokes, and it comes out. Uh, and I apologize. I'm gonna <laughs> we're here for, jokes, your, we're uh, here for your bad jokes. We wanted so. to do, a, with, with my girlfriend, a, a, a toilet paper roll when I, on every sheet I would write... We would write one of my bad jokes. <laughs> so it's something to, of the, to um, save uh, paper because you would not uh, tear two, three feet of paper to one wipe. You just have <laughs> one sheet because you want to read it. But you're solving... Anyway, that's, <laughs> with itself, it's another bad joke. Of it. Uh, this was true. But your, your video with solving the Rubik's Cube with your nose has been seen by... Two million people. Two million people. So, so yeah, that's... that's, that's uh, a paradox of YouTube, you think it's like something very democratic, but it's a, it's a big uh, ego uh, uh, booster. Because <laughs> you do something completely stupid, and then you, you see how it exposes. So, uh, but yeah, I, I like the things that are made by hand for the reason I said before. Um, I think it's good that you can make the thing yourself first, and then later on, you, yet later on, you need a crew when you do a feature film because unless you can spend 10 years, which would be very great. Uh, but I, I, it's difficult to frame that in, in a conventional uh, production because when you have something that's a little awkward, generally people will oppose uh, resistance to it. 
because it's not the way things are supposed to be done. So if you've done it before yourself, you say, well, you can do it this way, or you can do it this way, and don't tell me it's not possible. So that gives you this sort of strength. And there is this, especially when I started and the crew on uh, my shooting were very... Uh, Sort of reluctant and not believing, and, and, and they, they, you know, they, you got, you got people who are double your your age and they've been shooting for 20 years, and then you come and you have something that seems silly to them, and, and they sort of mock you. Uh, like this guy, the first shooting I did, I was 26 years old, and I asked this uh, 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 grip, or the guy who pushed the dolly, uh, mm-hmm. so that's a grip, I guess. To move the dolly from the window and turn around the bed and then frame a close-up of the clock. And it was quite specific because I needed that for my video. And uh, I walk away from him and I turned him, turned back to him to ask him, to give him more specificity. And he, he was like doing that <laughs> in my back. And he was like 40 years old and I was 26 and I didn't know. I mean, it would be now I would have maybe fired him just for the... Just to enjoy the action. <laughs> but at the time, I was shy, and I said, oh, I, can't, I was embarrassed that this guy was so trying to. <laughs> so that would tell you how, what, what you have to deal with when you are a, a young director, and, and you have to work with those very uh, uh, crew who are a little fed up with everything. So... To come back to the idea of doing stuff yourself, that, mm-hmm. that's good because at some point you're going to prove to those guys that it's possible and they, uh, they're going to think, oh, yeah, this is not too as stupid as I thought or stuff like that. And it's like I have my, my friend Jean-Michel Bernard who composed my score. He's an excellent piano player and he's like a super virtuoso. So when he has a big orchestra to direct, he's going to sit at the piano and play a little piece which like... Mm immediately show that he knows what he's talking about. So everybody, uh, a little bit of virtuosity is not too bad to convey uh, or convince people that they are in good hands. Hmm. So working with the Rolling Stones, because were, they were extremely well-established when they came mm. to you to ask you to do that video. I really established for 40 years. <laughs> yeah. So what was, what was that like? And, and where did you get the inspiration that the style... Such an amazing-looking um, video, but it seems to really be responding to the song and this idea of capturing what it's like to be on drugs, for one thing. I mean, the sort of drug trip. Yeah, I mean, it is, to be honest, this uh, type of video is not my style, but I mean, like the morphing and the technique and the look, this is really me. But the idea to cut from the band to a sort of a parallel story, it's something that I tried to fight uh, when I started to video. But... The reason they wanted a certain way. They wanted to have the pretty girl. They wanted yeah. to have the performance, the parallel story. And I have to say I compromised because I wanted to do their video. And uh, uh, so this way it's put together, it's not exactly on the drug stuff. That It's funny because some people uh, ask me uh, if I was doing drug when they saw that. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure if I was doing drug, I would not. I would do something more conventional, I guess, because it's kind of slow your brain. And, you know, right. <laughs> that, I'm trying to convince my son of that, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it doesn't really listen for that. But anyway, <laughs> I, I, the morphing was very in fashion at the time, and it had started a few years before on the, with, for instance, this video uh, by Michael Jackson when he would transform. 
uh, his face into all other faces, and that was the main reason to use morphine to do something, becoming something else. And I had this idea to do uh, to morph a picture with the se uh, same picture like half a second later. So we took yeah. this tilt camera and we took picture like four frames per second, chuk, right. chuk, 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 something like that. And then I, we tried to just morph. I sent them to a beef uh, company in Paris, and I, I asked them to just try to morph the picture one to the next one, and you get this gooey effect where they have to, they follow the arm, for instance. So as they don't separate the layer, the background is going to stick to the hand, and it gives this effect. Because I was asking a guy who had done acid how it looked. And he told me, uh, it looks like uh, the wall are like the surface of the tea when it gets cold. So it was very specific, uh, and uh, I sort of thought of that on, on uh, this idea of the surface getting a little, uh, like little skin. Uh, and then it was the other effect that was uh, stopping the time, and the idea was to shoot from two different angles at once, with two cameras uh, shooting at the same time, and then morphing from one to the other. That becomes this effect. And mm -hmm. As you said, it was... Uh, uh, it was used for the Matrix, but I, it was another guy as well who claimed that, and he actually hates me. Uh, it's, it's quite funny to, to mention that. Uh, uh, he, because he had the idea to do 100 cameras, which I had to, but I couldn't do it, and he did it, and then I did that, and etc. Et so it's how it goes. Uh, so I can't say I did, I invented the effect for the Matrix. I participated. Um, what did you find? in the process of animating with Legos that, that was maybe... I mean, how difficult was that process? Because I, I, it strikes me as you might have come up with this idea that seemed really simple, but what was the... No, but like a very that? simple thing, it's very complex, uh, complicated in reality. Well, the main difficulty, if you think of animating Lego, it's not like plasticine or moving paper when you have a shape and then you alter the shape and you take another picture. Uh, it's something you have to undo from scratch. So when the thing is uh, two pieces, you have no reference of what was there before. So therefore, we had to to have a guide on paper. So we shoot uh, everything on video, and it was. I wanted to make a video that you would, that was conventional because I knew that with the layer of Legos, uh, you had to recognize the shape very easily. Otherwise, you would not get anything. So I, I shot the most conventional video possible with performance on something for the street that obviously with shape and color that would allow the Lego to, uh, to allow to be represented by Lego. Uh, and then we we pixelized it. It was a very simple program. Actually, my dad and my brother worked on it and. and Basically, they pixelized it in a similar shape than the Lego blocks. We printed every uh, image on a piece of paper, and then the animator took every sheet of paper and built a sort of wall of Lego following exactly the shape. And then after, they put it in front of a 16-millimeter camera and shoot mm. well, it. It's, it sounds like a lot of work, which it is, but I mean, I, we worked like, uh, I guess, three weeks with maybe 10 people. Which is interesting to me is like you have to uh, to come up with a system how to organize the work. I mean, if you do a classical uh, animation, there is a lot of rules that you're going to follow, and it's all sort of uh, calibrated, and there is a protocol you follow, and, uh, and then you get to the result. But when you start something that's not been done, you have to create the protocol of how you're going to organize the work, and how you're going to uh, make sure everybody understands it and does the same construction, etc. And that's really fun 
for me to, to, to work, to find this system that everybody uh, can follow and, and produce the result. Your work has often been uh, noted for having a kind of childlike quality, and you've suggested that your childhood is important because you called your autobiographical film I've Been 12 Forever. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask you about that, about what your, um, sort of what your childhood was like and how, how you think it affected your, your work. Well, or, okay, but so, so it's, it really sounds like a statement, this title, but I mean, I, I can just explain how it came. And, and of course, if I choose it, I made a statement from it, but it was not so, I was not like, I mean, it's not so important. In fact, uh, I, I had a girlfriend at the time, and she remember. she told me one day, because she would ask me, oh, what age, when did you do that? And I always said when I was 12, uh, because for some reason it's when you move to the, high, uh, the, the next school, and it was a World Cup of football, and some event in my life that made me more remember this age than another. So every time she would ask me, I say, "Oh, I must have been 12." So she said, "Oh, you always said you were 12." So that how, it's how I got the title, but of course it as well fits a little bit uh, the, the style or whatever the quality of the work. Um, what I was referring to as well is there is a sense of when your brain is younger, uh, of course there is less connection and there is more, you absorb more. I mean, I have this very simplistic way of seeing the, the connection with the brain and the outside, which uh, it's sort of blank in the beginning and you have pre-connection or, or depending of what type of neurology or linguistic right. or you, you believe because it's a little blurry there but basically I always assume or I, I sort of made my own theory that in the beginning the information uh, has a great importance a great impact on you because your brain is, is forming and, and you don't have a right. frame of reference and as you grow older everything that gets through your sense in your brain uh, you get you store smaller and smaller bits because you, you have already so much references and you just uh, record the differences for instance uh, and I try to put myself at a, at a stage where my eye or my senses were very uh, uh, hungry of the outside world and much more absorbing and it seems that I grow older I see through a layer of glasses which I don't wear glasses, but I think that's another bad joke. But it seems that I see through uh, a window or something. I, I'm aware of, of uh, what's inside and what's outside. Uh, when you're a kid, it seems to be directly connected. I remember walking in the forest with my mom when I was maybe four years old or five, and having so this sort of acuity or uh, sharpness of information that I don't have so far uh, anymore. And, and it's a little bit like when you look at the eyes of people who get older, there is a little uh, edge that goes, that, that uh, makes it a little whiter. And I think it gets a little glaze that uh, you, you add, and it's kind of a sad image. But going back to the use, uh, to me, is trying to connect with that and, and try to... Uh, perpetuate that in in uh, present time. Often you give yourself very difficult technological challenges. Um, I mean, in many of your videos, you give yourself these very complex tasks uh, mm-hmm. to solve. Like, does that help you to somehow keep this quality you talk about? This yeah, maybe some, some. I mean, there is as well. 
It takes a little bit of show off. I mean, I'm sure uh, it's like uh, people say, oh, how did you do that? Uh, and I mean, I, I guess by getting a good response, uh, I sort of like, like to hear that uh, and I know how to get that in general. Um, maybe it's as well a way to protect myself. Like Hitchcock would say, uh, you run for cover, so you mean you... You do something you know, and sometimes I wish I could do, do something really simple, and, and, and you, the quality of it would, would burst out without any technology or any complexity. Unfortunately, every time I start something, you end up to be complicated at some level. But I like the challenge. I like basically when I when I do a video, I listen to the track, and I have a range of ideas, and there is this idea, and I think this is really ridiculous, and then I pass it. And then I come back and say, oh, wait a minute, maybe that's, it'd be fun to do because it's stupid. Because I, I, I want to, if you have something that's so tenuous, it's like holding by a threat, then you think you're going to have to give yourself a lot of work to make it work. So like, okay, let's do a video all with Lego blocks. That's some kind of uh, pointless or, or vain or whatever. But then you come back to it and say, okay, you're going to have to work so hard uh, to make it exist that it's going to become what's interesting about it. So I work a little bit like that, like taking the more tenuous idea and make it exist. And then I have to work double hard and uh, that's stimulating So let's talk about your transition into films because your first film, Human Nature, is about a character who is, you know, literally grew up as a monkey and is, like, brought in to be kind of civilized. So let's set it up, I guess, to talk about how you got involved with um, this film with Charlie Kaufman, I mean, with Human Nature. Um, I was friends with Spike Jonze, mm-hmm. and uh, I had moved into Los Angeles in the hope of directing a movie, and I was... I had worked on a, on a screenplay on a project called The Green Hornet, which could have been great, but uh, uh, I don't think... The studio uh, liked what we came up with. Um, and I kept reading screenplay and screenplay, and they, I, it was, they were uh, horrible. Mm. And uh, one time, you know how you can find the screenplay? I mean, I asked my producer, my uh, agent, to give me a screenplay of movie I had liked. Mm. Well, let's say I, I read uh, uh, the screenplay for Taxi Driver, for instance. I'm not a big Scorsese fan, but I mean, I have to say this movie is amazing. So I, was, I wanted to check if like, screenplay were boring by essence or, or you have to make a good movie no matter what. But then I read it and it was amazing on the paper. So mm-hmm. It was kind of depressing uh, to figure out that I got given bad material all this time. So I kept reading bad screenplay and it was taking from me forever. And then Spike was working on, on being John Malkovich and uh, right. he let me read the screenplay. And one more time, it was amazing, the reading. It was there. It was uh, just like a, you could stop. Generally, it would take me six to eight hours to read the screenplay. This one took me two hours. And I think for any English-speaking person, it would take one hour. Um, and, and I just realized that this was uh, you need the quality in the writing as well. So uh, I met with Charlie Kaufman, and we had a lot of things we talked about uh, in the way we conceive uh, the geometry and storytelling. And, and, and like most of the video I had done, and I still do, it's a sort of a geometrical pattern. And when he tells a story, he's very much into uh, this type of thinking. And so we, we, we got along very well. And um, later on, my friend Pierre Bismuth, who is a contemporary artist, 
give me this concept about memory raising and, and through Charlie Kaufman he became uh, uh, Eternal Sunshine. So he, he, he was writing it and it took forever. In the meantime, I read other, this spec screenplay that was him in nature and uh, I asked him if I could do it. When you make this move to directing feature films, you're working with actors um, in a way that you know, is more uh, maybe nuanced and different than working with musicians and singers. You have amazing performances by Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey. Um, could you talk about, a bit about Eternal Sunshine? Well, it's the main thing into directing those actors is they were coming from such a different background that they have to put them in tune for the same tone for the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charlie and I, we liked Jim Carrey, and obviously we needed somebody solid for to finance the film, and it's no secret that goes by the actor. Um, and so we have Jim Carrey, and then we have Kate Winslet, uh, uh, who we found her amazing, especially in uh, Smoking Singer by uh, Jane Campion. She had some similarities in her unpredictability of mood swing and that she was doing very uh, wonderfully. And Jim Carrey, who is great too, because I kind of liked how if he's always sort of an outsider, but obviously he put a lot of physical energy and he's very graphic and he's very aware of the camera. So all sort of things that are different because he comes from television or from more broad comedy. So I had to find a way to uh, underturn him and push her to make them on the same level of uh, acting or uh, of size of acting. And Katrin Slate, when I met her, she said something really smart. She said to me, she, she was saying herself, she wanted to do the part, and I liked how she was uh, really aggressively uh, trying to get the part. And she said, I'm going to block Jim Carrey in a corner and I will be Jim Carrey instead of Jim Carrey. And Jim Carrey would have to find something else because you can't have two Jim Carrey. Oh, there's a bad news. Well, anyway, okay, okay I will make it short now no, because no, no, people are losing <laughs> interest. Uh, <laughs> I made it too long. Okay, so anyway, I, she said I would be so big that he has to be small. And I think she made him as good as he was. I mean, I, I contributed to that and by many ways to trick him because an actor like that comes on, on the shooting with a lot of preconceived ideas and you have to just turn him around. Like, for instance, he wanted to do 48 takes and I knew that after the second text it would be not go- as good and it was great, the two first takes, when he didn't know what was going on, really, and he was just lost and trying to find his mark. And as soon as he would find his mark, it would, the shtick would come. And like right. the two first acts were amazing because he knew his text. He was very eager to do well, so he learned his line very well, which is very appreciable. And that, mm. that's great for an actor that knows his lines. And it's not yeah. so often that they, they do so. So that was great. Um, and Kate really pushed him and, and went over the top. So, for instance, when I would communicate my direction, I would talk to them separately because I would take to Ken, go ahead, make make it over the top, and I would take to Jim, this is not a comedy, make it very minimal. And if he had heard me talking to, uh, mm. oh. to Kate, this way <laughs> he would have exploded. And right. But for instance, there is this, this moment when she hits him in the, in the shoulder with her fist in a train, 
Uh, I told her, okay, this time you're going to punch him as hard as you can. And there is this thing when she, she okay, see you later, and she punched him in the shoulder. And he looks at her with such, like, a look that uh, it was like, fuck you, Kate with later. <laughs> it was, I, I mean, he didn't say anything, but the look was so uh, real. And it's how I get that. And, and like uh, sometime as well, when he was trying to, I, I had this idea when he saw the elephant to, he would become an elephant with his jacket and play with his the sleeve to make the trunk. And when he was doing it, I said to Ken, okay, leave the frame or disappear. And he, he does it and then he looked for his, her reaction and she was gone. And he was looking for Kate Winslet, not for Clementine. I and he has this lost look huh. in his face that's really touching because he has, like a child who's, who's hiding and nobody's looking for him. So, <laughs> so no. I, I, I knew, I find him how to, to trick him. I mean, it's that's not right. only tricking, but, I think actors are a little bit like children. Well, what did you feel like you were bringing, like your most important job as director? You have this amazing script by Charlie Kaufman and yeah. then these great actors. And there's an incredible lightness of touch that you bring to this. Um, I don't know. But well, I think my, my task was first, it was a lot about how we would go into the memory, um, go from one memory to the other, from reality to the flashbacks, etc. A lot of transition and as well how the memory would decay um, because they were erasing them. There was something, something repetitive a little bit because it's, 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 it's like a, the same uh, uh, process that occurs every time the memory disappears. So we're trying to find original ways without being showing, showing off but to entertain the, the audience for every transition, every uh, uh, transformation or, or disappearance. And Charlie had written stuff that were great. I can remember he was talking about the husks of the insect, you know, when they change skin. And the, the memory was supposed to be like that at some point. And it, it was undoable for me unless I would have, have tons of money and uh, uh, CGI or, or whatever. So what I think he wrote it with poetry, his screenplay. And I had to find a corresponding way to put that visually without transcribing every word because it was not the same language. Yeah. So to me, it would be like, for instance, uh, memories of some sort of texture, like the corrugated uh, fiberglass that you have to pr- protect from the rain in, in the garden. When you're a kid, I had that uh, to protect my bicycle. And this sort of very textured memory, I tried to mix them in a sort of... Uh, uh, an appropriate way, like suddenly the, the top of the table is is uh, replaced by that, or so it's raining inside uh, of the room, just like misplacing things that uh, instead of having special effect doing it. So I, I sort of many many ways to uh, to bring this element of of uh, uh, alteration of the moment. Like I remember we had this big frame and we put this transparent plastic or visqueen, which is just something you use to protect of the rain, but that diffuses the image in a very mm. artistic way, and we have the friends that were carried by gags behind uh, Jim Carrey, and we would shoot, obviously, without seeing the frame, but you would just see all the background uh, blurry. Uh, it's something that would look very uh, uh, sort of uh, common if you do it in post-production, but because we actually uh, went into the trouble to, to do it physically, I think it uh, it gives a, uh, it makes it different. Like for instance, we had this scene in uh, Barnes and Noble, and uh, I 
we started the scene in a Chinese restaurant, and then we continued the Barnes and Noble. So we made the Chinese restaurant at least the corner in the Barnes and Noble because in my brain it was very satisfactory to think of dressing a restaurant in in uh, within the the library, the, the bookstore. I mean, this type of things. Yeah. Uh, but that sounds technical, but I think through this process I managed to uh, to uh, illustrate what Charlie had uh, had written in Word. For your next film, The Science of Sleep, this is your first screenplay that you that yeah. you originated. So this film, you've filmed as part of this in, in the same building in Paris where an ex-girlfriend. No, I, yes, but it's, uh, it's, in this case, in this instance, it was a mother of my son. I think she deserves a different title. Okay. Well, what do you... Okay. <laughs> well, she's an ex-girlfriend, but she's a mother of my son, so okay. it's more... Uh, I don't know. Well, okay. You get, you get, you get uh, attached uh, for life, whatever, what, no matter what happens, because you have this child. <laughs> so, so ha- yeah, we lived there with her and my son in the same building, two floors below, so it was the same apartment. Mm-hmm. So tell us about how the script came about and how, um, well, the, I, the, I, you know, what I element of autobiography it was. It started when I did the video for the Foo Fighters and they were, each one was having their own dream and they would interact. They could go uh, through each other's dream. And I started to see the possibilities of that. And, uh, and initially it was much more about uh, Stefan. And it was, Stephanie was just more uh, like uh, um, a muse or not really existing in the real world. I met this person who, who we worked together and, uh, and I had the same situation that it's, uh, that's going on in the film. Uh, so this sort of uh, creative connection and uh, non-reciproc uh, attraction, uh, this very difficult situation uh, that's uh, pretty common, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so... So I gave much more substance to the character of Stephanie mm-hmm. uh, through this person I knew. And so it becomes much more about, uh, about creativity, about these moments that when you feel you're so close and then that should stay forever, but that doesn't work like that in real life. Yeah, it's great how they're, you just feel throughout the whole film that they are meant to be together, they seem to be kindred spirits, but they just don't quite yeah. connect. Okay, so you're invited because you, I guess maybe you made a film with the title uh, with science in the title. You're invited to MIT. Uh, well, maybe, uh, <laughs> but tell us what you were doing there. There's an invite artist. Uh, okay, uh, but I mean, but, I, I like uh, mathematics and geometry, yeah. and, uh, and I responded immediately when I, they reached out to me. But to me, it was great to go there. I mean, that's a great thing about doing my job is like I go to universities and. I sort of, of uh, fulfill uh, a lack in, in my education in some ways because <laughs> I, I didn't go so much in school and I felt, oh, I could have tried harder. And then now I go back to school and I have this sort of nice energy from being at school and I, I learn to express a little bit more of myself or my feelings or whatever. So I, I do a good use of my time by going into school uh, mm. now uh, and going to MIT was great because, of, of course, they come up with great stuff there. And, and, uh, I went one week, uh, one year, and, and the next year, another week. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was great because I met all those guys that were uh, working and mix, mixing with computer and technology. And, and, uh, and, and 
It's just like sort of brainstorm, uh, basically, and, and I get a lot of ideas, uh, and I met uh, uh, amazing people. The last time I, I went there, I had the luck to, to, to meet and talk with Noam Chomsky, uh, which I had read and watched a lot of uh, uh, documentary on. And, and so it was, you have this space where uh, all those brains are communicating, so it's great to be part of that for a little bit. And I read that you were doing experiments there where you were trying to combine computers and digital technology with yeah. uh, chemical reactions, trying to get Well, chemical. we worked on this thing that's called cornstarch. You know, it's, you mix this corn uh, powder with uh, water, and it's, I forgot the name of this type of texture. It's solid when you heat it hard, and it's soft when you go slow. So you have, have this game in Japan when you can run on it, but if you run too slow, you just... <laughs> you just uh, Dive, mm. and if you mm. take just a little scoop and you put a speaker underneath with uh, precise frequency, frequencies, and you film it with a strobe light, you have this crazy shape that looks like alien, and it's just amazing when you find the right. It starts by the geometrical pattern, then it starts to raise, and I just the second week I went, I, I we, we did a sort of workshop where everybody would bring their idea, and my idea was like, okay, all the special effects now are, are completely done by computer. And I think something is missing from the chemistry or the physical world. And I was trying to find ways to combine, to use the digital technology to control uh, uh, the duration and the repetitivity of the effect and use the uh, analogic uh, or the chemistry or the physical element to create uh, the complexity uh, of the effect because... There is so many parameters when you mix, let's say you mix two products and they go to the interwave. Uh, it's, it's something that you, you can never reproduce uh, with a computer. So if you can mix both, I think you can uh, achieve something really, uh, really strong. The film after this is a real sort of change of pace. It's, it's um, in a way very spontaneous. It's Dave Chappelle's Block Party. It's, a, it's your first feature documentary. Yeah. And it, it sort of has a spirit of you know, Dave Chappelle decides to put on a show in a block in Brooklyn, like sort of throw a concert. So it's the same kind of do-it-yourself, uh, this um, idea of just sort of taking an idea and like making it actually happen. It's this great combination of a performance by Kanye West and this marching band, I guess, it, that he found in Ohio. The production that hired me, I mean, that produced uh, this, this show... Uh, they didn't really care of what was outside the concert. Uh, so, but I, I didn't want to just shoot a concert. So we find this idea with Dave that he would go into places and try to sell tickets or give tickets for his concert. And he went into his hometown in Ohio and, and he was stopping people in the street and we shot all of that. And it was funny because it was quite hard actually to find people that would commit to go to, to Brooklyn. Uh, well, he shows up in Ohio and says he's, he's sort of giving out tickets to yeah. this concert he's throwing in Brooklyn in three yeah. days, right? And, and, uh, but he's asking the most unexpected people, and, right. and some people who just don't like rap music, or, or some day, this lady, she's going to Canada uh, for a trip. And, but so it's funny because, of course, I started to do movie very precisely, and Human Nature was uh, uh, very, uh, I would not say contrived, but it was very prepared. And I, I realized I was missing a little bit some life there, and I, when I went to do uh, uh, Eternal Sunshine, I made sure I was not so ready the day of the shooting. I was ready in terms of 
um, what I wanted to achieve with the scene. Uh, even not sure of that, but like especially for the camera position, the framing, I would really give much more space to the actor. And then when I did the block party, then I went on the set on on a on the street with nothing, and that's really totally scary. But mm. that was the challenge. It's like you go with nothing in, in mind, and then nothing happened, and then you get this tension. Like, like okay, I'm gonna go back home tonight, and I, I will have nothing. Like because like it's like it's it's noon and there is nobody in the street. So they oh let's go to this uh, uh, pizza parlor and then it's nothing happening there. And then we go let's go into this store bookstore. I know those guys are great and then it's dead there. And then we go to a barber and it's like very very little happened. And then say okay well, I know those guys there they're great. So well, we we go by this uh, uh, high school and and then there is and it's the end of the day and there's this kids who are running late for their rehearsal uh, in a matching band. And uh, I say to them, okay, go talk to them, because of course they're going to recognize him. And then suddenly something happened. They all group around him, and they want to show him that they know this Kanye West song. So they start to, to play the song, and he play with them. Uh, and, uh, and then later on, uh, he invites them to come to the concert, which most of them never went to New York. And, uh, and so we have to organize the trip, and, uh, and they have to get authorization from the, the head of the school. Right. And then they have to negotiate with him, and you see the guy talking, he's going to say yes, he's going to say no, and finally he says yes to, uh, to the conductor, and the conductor says, yeah, you're going to New York, and everybody <laughs> explodes in joy. And I think what's great is like, you build up this tension by, having, by wasting film, and we were shooting on film. Right. So... And I think that's a good thing. Like, because it was on tape, you would just roll and roll and roll. But on film, you're like making crucial, like excruciating decisions. Like, okay, let's roll 10 more minutes on that and nothing happened. And then you add up nothing to nothing. And then you feel you're going to be wasting your day on the day for people on the budget. But then there is one little thing that happened and it's just wonderful. And I think that's, uh, it's something I learned a little bit from uh, Raymond de, de Pardon who's a French filmmaker yeah. uh, who does amazing documentaries. And he has this rule he applies to himself. Is when he shot, uh, he used to shoot a film, I don't know how he shoot now, but the, the mag are 10 minutes long. And he has this rule, when he starts a mag, he has not, he's not allowed to stop the camera. And so he creates this tension when he said to himself, oh, it's nothing happening. Or he did this amazing one when he followed uh, a police uh, precinct uh, through their week. And so he started the camera, and she's wasting film away. And, and he said that this tension that he's creating makes such a suspense. Then, then you get the slightest little event, and it's just amazing. And he gets amazing thing. He visits a place where the guy called the police because he finds his wife dead, and he doesn't, he doesn't know he's, she's dead yet. And they come, and they say, this is the Charlie, Dingo, Charlie. They have a code that means deceased. But they don't want to say it out loud for the guy to not collapse because that's, they have to manage how they're going to break the news. Yeah. And they, they arrive and they see their face and they tell uh, the wife is dead. And then he stops the camera because he's very decent. And then you see the guy, he just learned that his wife is dead. And he, he, uh, he's like thinking, oh, what are we going to do with the body? So he's so in the moment completely lost that he's just grabbing the most trivial question. Um, you have to be so uh, 
unprepared. Un, it's pre, be pre, so prepared over the years, but completely unprepared uh, in the moment to achieve that. And all these documentaries are a compilation of these moments that are amazing. So, of course, my, I would not compare myself to, to him. Uh, that was my first really documentary. But I had that in mind, that going out with nothing prepared and just waiting for the thing to happen. And then you have wonderful things that happen, and, uh, and they are magical. And there is this moment when the Fuji's uh, reform that didn't play together in seven years or six years, and they are waiting... Uh, to go on stage and you see Lauren Hill waiting on the side. And, I mean, this moment gives me a goosebump yeah. when I watch it, watch it because it's really... Uh, and the music is just amazing. So that was great. That was a, a completely different experience. And did some of that carry over into Be Kind Rewind because you, you used real, like, real people from Passaic, New Jersey? Yeah, I mean, I was asked by Dave Chappelle to do uh, this documentary concert that was... Celebration, but I didn't know what the celebration was for, and I, I don't think people really knew when I would ask them what it was. So it was basically African American musician, rapper with a political conscience, but Kanye West is a little different. So it was very hard for me to define what I was doing, which was interesting because I had to find the subject as I was shooting, and. I eventually started to understand a little bit, started to understand that they were celebrating a little bit the idea of celebration, the idea of community, which was very, uh, I was not very, I was sensitive to it, but not so, uh, didn't have much knowledge about it, because coming from a very wide, broad neighbor, from a suburb from Paris, uh, and there is no sense of community uh, uh, where I came from. It's all about the consumption and the family or whatever. So, through the chapel, uh, well, all his humor is, is based on race and, and confrontation, differences. So, I started to look into that, and, 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 and basically, initially, I wanted uh, Dev to do uh, a block um, be with me. And so, I felt, okay, I will be fine to talk about racial issues and even make some jokes about it when he was with me because that's what he does all the time and, and, and right. he's fine, he's, he's black so I, I, I would be alone uh, but then he went and I was on my own so I, I decided okay I'm going to still do, uh, do it uh, so I felt really uh, awkward uh, but I had learned a, a lot from that uh, I mean this idea of, of, of shooting with people who are not uh, necessarily used to the camera or the idea to represent a group of people and talk, talk about more than two people, which was the case in my previous movies. It was always about two or four people or even one person. And then it was, it was a bigger group of person. And you came up with this great idea of, of a video store where all the, all the movies are erased accidentally and so the video clerks, Jack Black and Most Def, have to, they decide they're going to reenact every movie. Um, and so they'll make their own um, Ghostbusters in Rush Hour. And you came up with this term, sweeting, which is, that's the, the process of, of um, sort of Remaking, making a do-it-yourself yeah. version of a Hollywood film. So when you were filming the sweeted movies, what was the process like of making those? Was that just all sort of... Uh, improvised. Oh no, it was prepared because mm -hmm. all the tricks have to be ready and it has to be safe. So you can just, just 
you can't improvise that. Some of the dialogue were, were improvised, and, and sometimes we had extended shots when they were really uh, uh, having fun on, on, on being silly. But the problem is I had, I had, it was hard for me to convey to them to not overact the bad acting. <laughs> and it's, it's a little bit embarrassing to say to an actor, but basically I had to say, you don't have to act badly. If you act good, it's going to be bad enough. <laughs> and it's, it's true, and I have seen that in so many movies where actors pretend they are not actors. They think they are so good as an actor that if they were not an actor, they would be terrible. And the fact is that it's not so much of a difference. <laughs> and I'm saying that because I... I expect there's not too many actors in the room, so I'm, uh, <laughs> excuse, I will not dare to uh, to say that to their friend. No, I tell them try to as, to do it as good as you can. <laughs> I, say, I find it a little condescending from the actor right. world, and then when they act like if they are not actor, they uh, would act terribly. Yeah. And I've seen that in many movies. Uh, it's it's uh, like somebody who acts as it doesn't. It's very hard to ask somebody who sing in tune to sing out of tune. So they would generally overdo it, and it makes no sense. Because if I try to sing in tune, I would be out of tune. But it's not going to be completely absurd. Uh, and the same thing when I ask people to make the props and make them handmade. In the beginning, they were like uh, painting like totally in a rubbish way. And I told them, okay, those guys are not like the best artists, but they can paint something white right. without having a big patch of cardboard, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> So it's just they were overdoing the, right. they were overacting the, the painting. So you took this idea to the um, next level by taking the sets of Be Kind Rewind and, and doing an installation at the um, Deitch Gallery, the Jeffrey yeah. Deitch Gallery, and invited, you invited people to come in and, and use the costumes and sets and make their own movies. And we, yeah. This was my initial idea for Be Kind Rewind. So the concept I had for... Uh, very long time, and I, just, I want to insist a little bit on that because I know uh, there is other movies, uh, and it's always the case when you do something like when we did the Tennis Sunshine Memento just came out before. There is always people who think, oh, you know, he's just trying to to do what's in the mood of the time. Um, and there were those kids who did the Radio of the Lost Ark, and there right. was Son of Rambo, and etc. And all that, those are great things. And there is YouTube. My my concept uh, came. Uh, personally, very early, uh, uh, when I move in Paris, I, I, uh, I find uh, I move into a district uh, where, which has so many theaters that were transformed into other business because all the small theaters collapsed in the 70s when the big multiplex uh, emerged. And you have all the cinema were abandoned or, or transformed to Schuster or, or whatever. And I wanted to take one, um, use it to sort of create a community around the, the theater and give a camera to the neighbor and ask them to shoot whatever they want. And then we would edit it in a fast way on screen whatever they had shot during the weekend. They would pay the price of a regular ticket. And then the next week, we're going to use this money to reshoot. And then every week, you would have the movie of the neighbor. And, and it would be probably terrible, but it would be great because they, they, they are in it. So they see themselves. And I wanted to do it for real, but I didn't really pursue. Um, as being a director, that's one of the things you can do. You can create something that you, a utopia, for instance, you, that you, doesn't seem to be possible in the real world, but you construct the world around your idea, and then you make the idea work. 
So that's what I did. In it's Canada. a little bit like what the Kuchar brothers were doing in the, in the Bronx, uh, make you know, going to see big Hollywood movies and then sort of making their own versions, uh-huh. low-budget versions. What surprised you most about the types of movies that people made during this? That question, because they are very uh, different. What, what surprised me is they, uh, it's hard. I'm not going to answer your question directly. I don't like to do that. I'm, let me think what was my... <laughs> The main surprise is the, the goal was not the film themselves, is to see the process of people going through this protocol I was talking about earlier. Should basically people would walk in, and there is all sorts, lot of rules to follow, and, and you had all the set at, at your uh, convenience, and you have two workshops. One workshop you have to find, start with the genre, the title, and then you would go to the storyline. Uh, and then a more detailed storyline, and then you would go to workshop two, and you would have this big grid you would fill up. You would, each, the principle basically was like each storyline becomes a scene. So if you make a storyline that basically makes sense, and if you can illustrate each sentence of the storyline, then you make a movie that makes sense. You can tell the story. So that was the idea. And then when you had your grid, that would include basically uh, the action, not the dialogue, but the accessories required, the location. Then you would have a camera and edit in the camera. And for one hour, you would shoot. And then you, you would go into uh, the video store from Bikari One that we reproduced and watch a movie just after uh, having shot it. And every time it was the same reaction because of your, the fact that you're in the film... Because you see all what's in between the text, all the mistakes, or sometimes right. in, in the case of our film, uh, we did the last day, we, do, we have the biggest group, we are 20, and Tim Robbins, uh, even uh, Susan Sarandon came, and, and it was very fun because they really were playing with us. Um, for instance, the cameraman, uh, if I go to switch off the camera for two minutes and we would hear all our conversation, uh, how we're going to set the next scene, and he came up with a line, uh, I'm a hitman, so what, you have a problem with that? And, and that was all the mistakes are something that you appreciate because you remember doing them. And, and this is this uh, uh, connection to uh, making your film and watching it, I was trying to explore. And this was really successful because every time you would see uh, people watching their work or their game, they would have the same excitement. Uh, maybe what surprised me the most is that like I got the same result in terms of uh, interest or creativity from people who were from the film world or two people who had nothing to do with the film world, which... It's, it's a little bit the point I was trying to make. I feel we are a little club of people making movies, and we're like, like uh, you know, I was meeting somebody this morning, and he said, oh, I met this person in this place, and then I realized he worked with you. It's such a small world. And I said to this person, yeah, it's a small, small world because we don't want to share it. <laughs> Meaning that we were all lucky in this world to be creative, but so but we kind of do everything we can to not have too many people know that they could do it, because then <laughs> we won't do it so much and make right. so much money of it. And and, to, and my opinion is, if you give a camera to a lot of people, they would do a better job than me. But I am not told that, and I'm I'm telling them a little bit by doing this type of of things, but. Overall, they're not told that. I don't think they do a better job, but... <laughs> no, okay, well, I'm fishing for a compliment, maybe. Uh, 
it's um, true. And, but the, the, the thing is, like, I, I think there is a privilege here that's not being uh, shared a lot. Well, I do, uh, before we end, I want to congratulate you on winning a Webby Award, I guess uh, both for, I think, the spirit of Be Kind Rewind and what it's saying about this kind of do-it-yourself generation. I think that's one reason you won. And also these two YouTube videos uh, where you solve Rubik's Cubes with your feet and your nose, which has been seen by 4 million people. So congratulations on that award, and uh, we look forward to all your future work. And thanks Thank a you. lot for being here. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.